hands around the church. Beautiful. A whole team gets together and works on putting it all up and then taking it all down. Just creates a beautiful atmosphere and helps us to remember the essence of this season. You know what it is, in my opinion? God with us. Emmanuel. And when you think of the alternative, that would be terrifying. What if we were without and apart from God? You please tell me who would dare have hope. We'd be in trouble. So the Christmas event is Emmanuel, God with us. Folks, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Today I'll give you a chance to turn there. And then I want to tell you one of my Christmas presents is that Jack and Martha Perkins, where are they, are back here at Sagemont Church. I married that couple 23 years ago. No, it wasn't that long ago, but right out there by the cross. We had a, two years, Martha. Wow, 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 wow. And they relocated for a spell and now have come back here to Sagemont, which is where they belong. And so they mean a lot to me. And Jack is, is kind of my pusher. He gives me uh, these throat things it used to every Sunday. And uh, I, I've been sick since you've been gone. But now I'm going to get that stuff. Anyway, welcome home. They settled in Rose Sharon, and we're all invited over for a party here one of these days. Anyway, glad to have you both back. And you all used to sit right there on that side, as I recall. Great to see you again. Nothing's changed. Chuck is a little uh, more difficult to live with. But otherwise, things, uh, you know. So, so 1 Samuel chapter 16. I want to tell you something. In this chapter, we will be introduced to the next key player in First and Second Samuel. His name is David. And though he is not mentioned by name in this chapter, he'll become notable by it. Hey, God bless you, folks. He will be, no, uh, he'll, he'll be easy to identify as we get into the text. Take a look. Verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel. Now Samuel had been in retirement of a sort. He retired to his home in a place called Ramah, which means the heights. It would be the equivalent of the Texas hill country. He's no fool. He decided to retire in a place that would be relaxing and enjoyable, but he wasn't relaxed. In fact, he was distressed because the king he served proved to be a reprobate rejected by God. This saddened Samuel greatly, and he was prepared to spend the remaining years of his retirement in this particular state of despair. Now, God calls him out of retirement for a specific mission, the likes of which you will become acquainted with in this text. So the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Now, this is a little unusual if you think about it, because we think of God as being the God of all comfort. And here he's putting a time limit on Samuel's grief. Could you please help me get God off the hook? How could it be that a gentle, gracious, compassionate God would tell someone, stop grieving. Why do you think God did that here to Samuel? Any thoughts? Any, any, go ahead. 
Yes. You're absolutely right. Our sister said the solution to the problem is at hand. Uh, God has permitted a period of legitimate grieving, but the solution to the problem is introduced here. And so it's time to move on. Now she's right. Samuel was grieving the fact that Saul as king was rejected by God. And he was in despair, I think, wondering about what now would befall Israel. And God is saying, stop grieving because I have a plan. Saul has been rejected, but his replacement is on the horizon. And so he's telling him, don't be so upset. Now, the reason I'm belaboring the point is this verse has been used as a weapon to get those who are legitimately grieving the loss of a loved one to stop. That is not what this verse is saying. God never puts a time limit on your grief. Listen, you've been wedded to someone for a number of years. The two have become one. And then suddenly it's just you. And different things trigger a a sense of the loss you experience. It could be a holiday season like the one we're in the midst of now. It could be a song on a radio. It could be something inexplicable. You're in a car riding down the road, and suddenly you're just moved by something to tears. And your sense of absence from your loved one is accentuated. Far be it from any of us to say to someone like you, are you still yet not over it? By the way, over it would be easy, but over him or over her is not so easy. That grieving person is dealing with a relationship, cherished, valued, and which no longer is going on. Far be it from us to suggest to that person that their goal is to get over it. No, the goal of grief is not to get over your sense of loss from a loved one. It's for you to be ushered into the presence of your heavenly husband who will never die nor leave nor forsake you. The purpose of your grief is to accentuate your connection and dependence on almighty God. You're not supposed to get over. See, if you get over, you no longer feel the loss. That's a way of saying, I don't really miss the person who's gone. That disrespects that person's memory. Now, I want to tell you, sadly, there are some people no longer amongst us who are not missed. Let's be honest. We're kind of glad to some people see some people move on. Well, I know I am. Let's go around and name some names. <laughs> Spice it up. I mean, some people have lived lives to some extent of such uh, a poor, even hurtful quality that there's a sense of relief when they're gone. If that's not the case with your loved one, wow, what a sign of respect you're showing. You're saying, I miss him or her because he enlarged my life. He didn't diminish it. She enlarged my life. She didn't diminish it. So I'm taking time here because I would hate for us to take this verse out of context and use it to get up in someone's face and say, dry your tears, enough is enough. This is speaking of a governmental change. This is not talking about absence and separation 
from a loved one with whom you shared your life and lives together for a long period of time. Nobody has a right to put a time limit on your grief. And for you, the goal is to be sustained, be maintained, and for the intensity of your grief to subside through time and the watch care of a very gracious and compassionate God. Not to go away, but for the intensity to subside. And if you speak to someone who's lost a loved one, they will tell you it doesn't go away, but the intensity of it does subside. It can flare up at times, but it subsides. And then you find out, people will tell you, I'm finding a reason to go on. I'm finding that with God's help, I can um, handle this new normal. It's a new normal. So they make progress and so on. But you don't make progress by stuffing and denying your feelings. You don't. And so this verse is not to be used to that extent. This is God saying, Samuel, you don't care for Israel as much as I do. One inferior uh, leader is gone. I have a new one on the way. Pick yourself up. I'm going to even use you as part of the process. So that's what's going on. So God says to Samuel, fill your horn with oil and go. Now that uh, sounds a little weird. It's a ram's horn. It's hollow. Now you wait for the ram, you know, to die. It's a general rule. And, and just use the ram's horn. You fill oil and it's a, it's a vessel. And from it... Uh, the next king will be anointed. God said, I'll send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. So Jesse was the son of someone named Obed. Here's a bonus question. He's the son of Obed, but he is the grandson of whom? Anybody know? Who, what do you think? What'd you say? No, not of David. Bo- Boaz. Yeah, Boaz. And who else? Ruth and Boaz. That's correct. Nice going. Let me ask you like a triple bonus question. Uh, What tribe is he from? He's way to go. Tribe of you. Now, I'll tell you why that's significant. It's because of what God said a long time ago in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. He said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. So you see God and his sovereignty fulfilling his plan. There'll be a king on the throne of Israel who's from the tribe of Judah. Now, this fellow Jesse had a number of sons. Uh, who is Jesse's youngest son? David. See, Rita, that's where you wanted to chime in right there. Okay, David is, uh, is this fellow's youngest son. Now, he lives at a place called Bethlehem, hence he's called the Bethlehemite. Bethlehem is about four or five miles away from Jerusalem. And the text goes on to say, I have selected a king for myself among his sons, from Jesse's sons. One of them is going to be king by God's selection. Saul was the people's choice. This next one will be God's choice. Now, the people made their choice on the basis of criteria God doesn't hold to. You'll see. They chose Saul because he literally stood head and shoulders above the crowd. What is it with you people? always liking tall folks. I don't understand that. God could put good things in 
small packages. So anyway, they wanted Saul because he looked like, oh, man, he, he looks like the king. And so God said, that was your choice. But now you'll be instrumental, Samuel, in selecting the king of my choice. In verse 2, Samuel said, how, how can I go? When Saul hears of it, he'll kill me. So the Bible is blatantly honest about human nature. We have a tendency to think Samuel and ones like him are superheroes. There are no superheroes in the Bible save one, the God man. The rest of the men and women of the Bible are like the rest of us here. We have strengths, we have weaknesses. You would think this man of God would not worry about what's going to happen to him since God's sending him out on this particular mission. Instead, he says, oh, no, God, if Saul, you know, he's a little unstable, a little, he was, Saul was going crazy during these days. You know, he, he's going to get me. What assurance do I have that I'll be safe? So God, being very patient with ones like Samuel and us, uh, said, take a heifer, Uh, with you and say, if anyone asks, say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. So this leads me to this question I'd like to ask you. Is God encouraging Samuel to lie? Okay, no, but then what do you mean? How can you defend God here? That's what it looks like he's saying. Once again, how can you get God off the hook? Nope. He's not inviting Saul to the sacrifice at all. He's, he's, you know, his primary mission is to, his primary mission is to find the king. Uh, he's, he doesn't want Saul to find out about that. So he's not inviting him at all. And then God says, well, just tell people you're going to make a sacrifice. What do you think, Bear? It's not bad. So Barry is saying you could lie as, as long as you don't derive any noticeable personal benefit from it. So, thank you, Barry. Really appreciate that thoughtful response. Okay, this is getting worse. Okay, what do you think, Rex? Ah, so Rex would be an excellent lawyer. Rex is saying... Isn't serving God a sacrifice in and of itself? Therefore, if Samuel serves God, he's sacrificing, and therefore this is no lie at all. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Politician in the making. What do you think, Hep? Well said. He's got the cow. Well said. Yeah, Joe, all the way back there. 
Yeah, well, well, here's the deal. What Jill says, Jill says, it sounds like a half truth. I don't think it's a half truth, but it's half of the truth. Now, listen. To tell someone who's not trustworthy half of the truth is not to lie to that person. That's just to be wise. Listen, an irresponsible person who even would be led to sin if he had too much information. If you withhold it from that person, that's not lying. That's just, that's just keeping that person from sinning. If Saul gets the whole story, he may seek to kill Samuel. So to say, I'm going to sacrifice is not a lie. As Hap said, that's exactly what he's going to do. He just doesn't volunteer more information. That's not lying. There's no virtue in telling people more than they ought to know if they're going to use it for sinful purposes. Well, it, I wouldn't say it's deceptive in, 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 the, in the sense we think of deception. It's just, it's just why. For instance, Barry, I am not telling you right now the full load of what I think of you. <laughs> and, um, you know, cause, because I, I, I don't want to hurt you or anything like that. That's not deceiving. That's just being discerning. So I love you, brother. You're only getting some of the truth. All right, look. So look. And I want to tell you something else. In this day, it wasn't unusual for there to be a guy like Samuel, kind of an itinerant sacrifice offerer. He would go from place to place to offer sacrifice, kind of like a peace offering, they called it, fellowship offering, especially when the Ark of the Covenant was not where it's supposed to be, where the tabernacle was. Now, there was a time, you recall, when the Philistines laid hold of the Ark of the Covenant? Well, during that time, sacrifices didn't stop. People like Samuel still went about and offered it. Okay, we'll just move on from that conversation because it didn't really get us anywhere good. So anyway, uh, verse 3, you shall invite Jesse to the sacrifices and I will show you, God says, what you shall do and you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. You know what strikes me here? Uh, Samuel, the prophet of God, knows so little of what's going to happen. <laughs> God says, I'll show you what you shall do. You shall anoint the one I designate to you. He's the prophet. He's the man of God. He doesn't know what's going on. I want to tell you something. Very rarely does God in advance reveal his specific will, will to his people. Mostly he wants to get up. He wants us to get up and follow him by faith. And along the way, he'll define the course and the path, help us with decision-making and so on. It's very, very, that's, how I'm, that's why I'm always wary of folk, usually on TV, who announce in advance what God's going to do. God told me he's going to lead you to whatever this event. I mean, maybe, but that's very exceptional. In most cases, God says, get up and I'll give you today your daily bread. And I'm not telling you about tomorrow because you, I can't entrust the future to you just yet. You'll worry about it too much. So I'm just going to give you daily bread. So anyway, even the man of God here doesn't know too much. And then it says in verse 4, So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city, by the way, uh, the, re- the reason why Samuel is real nervous about Saul is this. To get from Ramah to Bethlehem. Samuel's at, Be- at Ramah, that's his retirement house. To go from there to Bethlehem, you had to go on a road, about a 10-mile journey. And the road happened to go right by a place called Gibeah. And Gibeah is where Saul is hanging out. 
So Samuel is thinking, oh, no, I passed by Saul's house. He's going to see me, and I'm in trouble. So his concern is understandable, but a little misplaced. Okay, so verse 4, he does what the Lord said. He comes to Bethlehem, and the elders of the city came trembling to meet him, and they said, do you come in peace? So I want to ask you a question. Why are the elders of the city, the elders of Bethlehem, why are they trembling? Why are they concerned? Any thoughts on that one? Yeah, so Brother Stan is exactly right. Here comes the man of God to your town. It's not a typical daily occurrence. They're going to start thinking, oh, no, what have we done? What has he come to hold us responsible for? Absolutely. And they're also thinking this. They are aware of the rift between prophet and king. They know Saul and Samuel are at odds with one another, and they're thinking Samuel's coming to win us to his cause. If we align ourselves with him, Saul will have our head. So they're nervous about stuff. So they say, you're coming in peace. Samuel assures them, in peace, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And he says, verse 5, consecrate yourselves. Come with me to the sacrifice. What does it mean, consecrate? They literally would bathe. But it wasn't for hygienic purposes. It was for ritual purposes. It was kind of a ceremonial cleansing of themselves for a special time of worship so they would take a bath and they would change they put on clean clothes that's what it meant to consecrate yourself and then it said he also consecrated jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice and now i think you don't have to buy this i think what but I think what's going to happen next does not take place in the public square i think it takes place at jesse's house the selection of the king, I don't think, was public. Remember, if Saul finds out about this, he is, he's going to go crazy. So I don't think they publicized it yet. From the time of the selection of David as king to the time he actually assumes that position is actually a matter of years. It's a while. So I think they're now moving over to the privacy of Jesse's house. So it says in verse 6, when they entered, entered what? It's his house. When they entered, he, Samuel, looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. When Samuel saw this guy named Eliab, who was Jesse's firstborn son, he had a few sons. The oldest is paraded in front of Samuel as the potential king first. That's the way they did it in the old days. The firstborn son goes first, then the second, third, and everyone. Yeah, Joe? So Joe's question, in case you didn't hear, is an excellent one. What's the reason for this big gap between the time he's anointed and the time he takes the throne? I think it's because Joe, at this point, he's probably only about 15 years old. He's a shepherd boy. He does get anointed again later. It's a second anointing of David. This was an anointing to indicate he's being prepared for the position. Remember, he's, a 15, he's about a 15-year-old shepherd boy at this particular time. How's he going to learn how to govern? Well, you'll see in a second, but that's going to take some time. So, okay. So anyway, 
Eliam passes before Samuel. Samuel says, oh, he's got to be the one. He's got to be the choice to lead Israel. Now, I want to ask you a question. On what basis do you think Samuel came to that conclusion? His appearance. His, his age. Sure. He's the oldest. He probably was the, a tall guy. I'm, t- I'm telling you. I'm a little sensitive here, but, I, you know, I'm just trying to be. Yeah, he's probably a tall guy. He was probably had some stature, some external appearance on the basis of which Saul came to the conclusion, ooh, he'd be a good king. And I want to tell you, you would think he would have learned from this because of Saul. Saul also was a tall guy. He stood head and shoulders above the crowd. And then Samuel sadly found out uh, that wasn't the real measure of the man. And so Eliab passes by and so you know what Samuel and the others are doing? They're doing what we do. They are making pre-judgments, that's where we get the word prejudice, on the basis of external appearances. When a person of a different race or ethnicity parades before you, you are prone to make a pre Judgment. You don't know the person. You don't have a clue what the person thinks and feels and believes. You can't get close to that person's motives or heart. You make your prejudgment on the basis of externals. Folks, we do it all the time. Do you mind me saying that's part of the root of racism? And how can we get away from it? Well, first you have to acknowledge it's who we are. It's a human tendency, and no group is immune from it. The first part of winning victory is acknowledge it. I'm prone to judge people by externals. Look, I read today, or before I came, a journalist uh, has been suspended for, uh, a journalist with ABC for the, what did you say his name? That's the guy. I was trying to think of his name, Delphi. Brian Ross. Now, if you saw him, you would recognize him. So I want to admit something to you. I'm no big fan of ABC, but I've seen him over the years. He's a journalist of notoriety. He's no rookie. He's been around for decades. And I must tell you, when when I watch his reporting, I have confidence in it. Why? I don't know the way he looks. He just looks the part to me. He looks good. He speaks with a thought. It's the way he looks and the sound of his words. He's such a good speaker, you know, when he does all that. Well, I was reading today, oh my goodness, he has quite a spotted journalistic past. Just recently, he seemed to distort the facts on a particular matter, and it appears that there's a whole series of such distortions that have uh, uh, characterized his, his career. But my point is this. I'm a human. I'm making a judgment on the way he looks. Uh, in the last class, I have permission to share this with you. She told me, Katya attended. You know Katya Banfield? Yeah, she's a terrible person. You should avoid her. But anyway, no, Katya's a doll. Anyway, Katya said in, uh, I think, the last election, I don't know what it was, she was uh, talking to her husband, Tony, and, and uh, she said, hey, uh, I'm really interested in maybe voting for Rick Perry. You remember Rick Perry? You know him was the governor. He said, why? And, and she said, uh, because he's so good looking. <laughs> See what I mean? I had a sister. 
she, my sister, uh, what I'm talking about is deceased. And I remember one election, this was a few back, I said to her, who are you going to vote for? And uh, she said, I think I'm going to vote for so-and-so. Now, the two candidates were had totally uh, disparate points of view. Their platforms were entirely different. She was going to vote for one particular person. I said, why that person? She didn't even know what that person stood for. She said, well, I just like the way he speaks. And uh, oh, he just looks presidential. And he's such a good speaker. You know that kind of deal? So what he stood for and all the rest, whatever it may be, good or bad, she, was, she didn't go that way. She made a pre-judgment on the basis of the countenance and demeanor and ways. But that's just not my sister. That's, I'm telling you, that's the way we operate. That's why we need verse 7, the very next verse. Check it out. But the Lord... So, so Samuel stuck on Eliab for... Uh, because of his physical appearance. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees, not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. There's no verse of scripture that more clearly distinguishes our focus from God. Ours is external. His is on the inside. Don't feel so bad about yourself. It has to be that way. I don't know what's on someone's heart. You don't know what's on mine, really. We do the best we can to consider a person, but really, we're finding in news every day surprising revelations of someone's misbehaviors that we knew not of. See, we don't really know. The only one who can cut through it all, all the externals and appearances, and make judgments on the basis of a person's heart is Almighty God. Well, what is ours to do? Ask God to search our heart. Search me and try me and see if there be any hurtful way to me. David prayed this. And lead me in the everlasting way. It's like he permitted God to evaluate his heart. Now, folks, here's our problem. We invest a lot of time on the way we look. I'm not saying we shouldn't do the best with what we got. Hair, skin, exercise. It's okay. Pretty it up. Juice it up. Best, best we can do. No shame in that. But that's not the essence of who we are. And God looks past it. <laughs> Looks to the heart. Would that we spend as much energy developing the inner person of the heart as we do the Hollywood image we each want to portray. <laughs> God looks past that. And beauty is vain. But the heart, our motives, our thoughts, would that God so move in us that we want to have a, de a devoted heart to Almighty God. Well, okay, that's kind of what's happening over here in verse 7. And Samuel should have known this because look at the decision, the basis of the decision with which Saul became king, and he didn't prove to be such a good king at, at all. So verse 8, then Jesse called Abinadab. So that's the secondborn son of Jesse, called him and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, no, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Now, how do we know how God communicated his will in this regard to Samuel? 
We're not told. We're simply not told. Do you know that? We're not told. Why we're not told? Because God said, I don't think it's important for you to know. (laughs) Do you know the Bible is not given to us to satisfy our curiosity? The Bible contains, from God's point of view, absolutely everything he wants us to know. And stuff we have a curiosity about, he just doesn't put in there. We just have to wait to see Jesus face to face. We'll have an eternity to ask our good questions and get answers. But for now, we just have what God wants us to have. In some fashion, he influenced Samuel's decision-making to the extent that Samuel knew the first two guys are not going to cut it. And so it goes on, verse 9. Next, Jesse made, this is son number three, Shammah pass by. And he said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Thus, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the children? You know why he's doing this? God had told him they'll be the next king from Jesse, one of his sons. So Samuel knows there's got to be another one. Are these all? And he said, Jesse said, well, there there remains, you know, the youngest. They weren't even thinking of him. He's not even invited to the party. The youngest is not even there. The youngest, and behold, he's tending the sheep. What's his name? Dave, we know that. He's not even mentioned yet. He's just tending the, he's watching the animals. Then Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him. We will not sit down until he comes here. By sit down, after the sacrifice, they had a meal. No, 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 no. Said Sam, we're not, we're not, we're not getting involved in that until that youngest guy comes. By the way, the word youngest in Hebrew also is translated smallest. I'm just saying. It's in direct contrast to the uh, larger stature and advanced age of the other brothers. This is the youngest. This is the smallest. He's taking care of smelly old sheep. Do you know in ancient Israel, the shepherds oftentimes were excluded from services like this because they were defiled by handling the animals. In fact, there was a law that uh, the testimony of a shepherd in a court of law in the old days would not be uh, taken very much into account. You didn't want your sister to marry one, let me tell you. And God is going to get his king from the sheep folds. I'll read it to you. Psalm 78, verses 70 and 71. He also chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep folds, from the care of the ewes with suckling lambs. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. Now, God recruits in a way we don't think of. This wasn't one of the finest, from the finest Ivy League school, from the academic elite corporate world. What pedigree does a smelly old shepherd boy have? But God looks on the heart. Remember one time he said, David is a man after my own heart. And so you see here, he wasn't even invited to the festivities. He's the youngest. He's the small. By the way, this is God's way. He does things to confound us. When he selects people for service, it's not the way we would. I, I, I'll prove it to you. First Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 and on. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. 
and the base things of the world and the, the, the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Very interesting. Of course, David, the shepherd boy, typifies Jesus, the good shepherd. You talk about being confounded. Jesus did not look like the Messiah. He didn't look. You know what he looked like? An ordinary person. He was probably of average height, curly hair, brown skin. He didn't look like Yul Brenner at all. He walked in a room. You wouldn't give him you wouldn't give him your seat. He just looked like somebody else. In fact, Isaiah in chapter 53, in anticipation of the Messiah, said this. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. That's the king of kings. God got David, a shepherd boy, to shepherd Israel. God got sent Jesus, the good shepherd, to shepherd ones like you and I who put our faith in him. It confounds the world. That's the way God is. But God knew what he was doing when he took David from the sheepfold because I'll tell you what a shepherd has to learn. A shepherd has to learn that though you can drive cattle, my fellow Texans, you can drive cattle, but you lead sheep. You see, God knew what he was doing. And in order to lead sheep, they have to follow you. In order for the sheep to follow you, they have to trust you. In order for sheep to trust you, they have to know you care about them. The shepherd would have to learn how to win the trust of sheep. That's who God recruited to shepherd his people, Israel. In verse 12, so he sent and brought him in, and now he was ruddy. That means like red. What does that mean? Some people say he had like red hair. Others say, no, he's just a young boy. He hadn't even shaven yet. That kind of thing. Clean, kind of like maybe rosy cheeks or something. Said he had beautiful eyes. What do eyes have to do with it? It's a Hebrew, Hebrew expression. It means he was a handsome young kid. That's what that means. And what it says, he had handsome appearance. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him. This is he. Now, it's not like his good looks disqualified him from being king, but it's that his good looks alone didn't qualify him for being king, you see? So verse 13, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now Samuel went to retire, this time in peace. We won't read about him again until chapter 19. The verse says the spirit came upon David. In contrast, look at verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Not only that, an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Now I want to tell you something. What happened in verse 14 will never happen to you if you're a Christian. 
God withdrawing his spirit. That's why you never see anyone in the New Testament pray that prayer. Take not thy spirit from me. That's a prayer restricted to the Old Testament. Why? Because the Holy Spirit, though he existed in Old Testament days, manifested himself in different ways. He would come upon uh, people for specific, well-defined periods of time, usually to perform uh, divinely ordained acts of service. But then you got Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. That's when the Holy Spirit came in a dramatic way to show us, wow, there's something new happening. Then the Holy Spirit comes and indwells believers permanently. In fact, Ephesians chapter 1 says we are sealed in the Holy Spirit, who's simply a pledge or down payment of the rest of what God has for us. Things are different now since Acts chapter 2. Well, listen, if God's Spirit departs from Saul, that leaves a void, a vacuum in his life. And you know who fills it? Evil spirit. I don't want to get people unduly nervous, but that's true today. If God's spirit is not welcomed and inhabiting and filling your life, there are spirits out there who are waiting in line to do it. You either are possessed by the Holy Spirit or you might be under the influence of non-Holy Spirits. I know that's a little dramatic, but I'd like to know what the third option is. I mean, you are sought after either by Satan or Savior. That's it. There's no third person who wants you. It's those two. And so here it says an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Was that a demon? No, I think so. Yeah. See, what does God have to do with demons? Satan, you know, uh, who controls all demons, is just a created being. Did you know that? He's powerful, but he's not the creator. So his activity has to be authorized by God, as with Job. Remember that? God gave Satan limited permission to afflict Job. And so here, an evil spirit, I think a demon is sent to him, terrorized him. In what sense? He becomes quite paranoid. He becomes quite depressed. Uh, today, we might diagnose him as having bipolar disorder or being a paranoid schizophrenic. Let me just depart a little bit and tell you, Today, we Christians argue when someone has an emotional struggle or disturbance, is it demons or is it chemical imbalance in the brain? The answer is almost always yes. Why do you make it an either-or situation? I've never ministered, counseled with someone who has a chronic emotional problem who isn't now vulnerable uh, to, um, uh, to the evil one. Now, it's not that the evil one authors all mental illness, but he can sure take advantage of it because it makes someone vulnerable. Uh, And then the second part of it is there is chemical imbalance. In fact, it happens with older people as we get older. I'm one of them now. Uh, Chemicals get rearranged in your brain. That's one of the reasons why there's such a high rate of uh, depression and even suicidality amongst older people. Um, so it's usually what we call multifactorial. If someone's depressed or something like that, 
You can't opt for simplistic explanations because the Bible says we're fearfully and wonderfully made. A skilled counselor will take into light all the possibilities, spiritual warfare possibilities, chemical imbalance possibilities, sin possibilities, situational distress, all of the rest. I think the counselor you want to avoid is someone I call a reductionist. There are two kinds. One is a spiritual reductionist. They reduce everything to demons, everything that troubles you as demons. That's a, they reduce a spiritual reductionist. And so a naturalistic reductionist makes everything a psychological process. How about some balance? It's both and. Satan's alive and well. And then we could also experience some physiological um, impairment which could lead to emotional issues. Look, for instance, if you're hypoglycemic, just that, and you're not getting treated. Your blood sugar stuff can bring about depression and anxiety. So as you, if you go to a spiritual reductionist and they're just talking to you about sin in your life and Satan, they'll get you to confess everything under the sun. When you really need is a dietary uh, adjustment and a good physical exam from a doctor who adjusts your blood sugar levels. That's what I mean. You want to take everything into a account. Anyway, so something happens to this character, and he becomes increasingly quite paranoid, Saul does. In fact, uh, it becomes uh, so noticeable that verse 15, look what it says, Saul's servant said to him, behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. They see what's going on. And so they propose something, verse 16. They say, let our Lord, by Lord they mean him, Saul. Saul, command us your servants, uh, and, you know, we'll seek someone who's a skillful player on the harp. Why? Because it was thought in the ancient days that uh, music can soothe an anguished soul. There's truth to that, is there not? There's a whole field of study that you can major. You can go to college, study music therapy, where you become adept musically, but then you apply it to people's maladies, their depression, their anxiety, and so on. There's something to it. Why a harp, by the way? Well, it's the oldest instrument mentioned in the Bible. It goes back to Genesis chapter 4. But it's not a harp like you envision today, a big old thing on a stage. It's something you can carry around, stringed instrument, also called a lyre, L-Y-R-E. Anyway, find someone, they say, who can play this instrument. That'll take care. Look, they mean well. They're kind of misdiagnosing the problem, you know? You need some good music, Saul. No, 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 no. You know what he needs, really? Some good repentance. That they didn't tell him. They should have told him. Because if Saul repented and sought God, God would have forgiven him and he would be at peace. But that didn't happen. So Saul buys this in verse 17. Uh, he says, okay, provide for me such a man who can play well. Bring him to me. And then one of the young men steps up and says, look, I, 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 I've seen a son of Jesse, you know, the guy who lives in Bethlehem. He's, uh, the, his son is not only a skillful musician, he's like the total package. He's a mighty man of valor. He's a warrior. He's prudent in speech. He's a handsome guy. And the Lord is with him. And Saul said, uh, sent messengers to Jesse, David's dad, and said, can you send me your son David who, who's with the flock? So Jesse take, you know what's interesting here, verse 19? Saul unwittingly is inviting into his home his own replacement, and he doesn't even know it. You know what that's called? The sovereignty of God. Saul doesn't get it. You know who else doesn't get it? David. 
David didn't, didn't come into his position through wit and wisdom. It's the sovereignty of God. Hey, if you want to do something, it's kind of fun one day. Go to a park, sit on a bench. Just reflect on your life. Start with yesterday, then last week, last year. Go back as far as you can remember. Answer the question. How much of all that's transpired is due to your wit and wisdom? And how much is due to the sovereignty and goodness of God? There's no such thing as a self-made man or a self-made woman. Are you crazy? You can't even take the next breath if God doesn't supply it. It's wonderful to look back and say, not because of your plans, but in spite of it, you made it to this point. That's God doing it. So in this case, David makes it into this into the court of the king by, based on the sovereignty of God. He doesn't get it. Saul doesn't get it. And look how good this is. Look at you can't go from being a shepherd boy to being the king. How do you get that? I mean, only in the U.S. can you go from something to being the president of the United States, whether you're qualified or not. I didn't say anything. No, um, but, but in ancient Israel, you need some tutelage. So here he will be. Uh, in the court of the king, he'll learn government. He'll learn the manner of the court. He'll learn uh, fiscal policies. He'll learn about all this stuff. And Saul invites him. And so, verse 20, Jesse took a donkey and he loaded it with bread and wine. And a young goat sent him to Saul by David, his son. And David came to Saul and attended him. And Saul loved him greatly. Enjoy it. While it lasts, David, because it's not going to last long. In fact, you can count in First and Second Samuel. It looks a bit like there's about 16 times Saul tried to kill him. And he became his armor bearer. That's a trusted position that he was given. All this due to the sovereignty of God. Now, verse 22, Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David now stand before me because he's found favor in my sight. And it came about whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp, play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. So I want to tell you this. This is just, uh, I'm speculating a little bit, so don't buy this if, 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 if you think I'm out of uh, reach here. When David took up the harp, I don't think he just, I don't think he was just an instrumentalist. Do you know David was also a gifted songwriter? What's the evidence that David was a gifted songwriter? The Psalms. He's out there as a shepherd boy. He's got plenty of time when the sheep are bed down at night. What's he going to do? He's writing songs. So good were they. They end up being in Israel's ancient songbook available to us today called the Psalms. I think when he took up his harp and went in to soothe the torment, of uh, Saul, it wasn't just his beautiful harp playing that got it done. He exposed Saul to truth, Psalms, the very word of God. That's what gave him. That's what gave him some temporary rest and comfort and freedom. In fact, the Bible says in Ephesians six, the sword of the spirit is the word of God. That's our only offensive weapon. I mean, the evil one, the father of lies, can't occupy the same space as truth. So I think David was sharing. And, and I think maybe, maybe one of the songs or psalms that David sang to Saul was one you're perhaps familiar with it. It goes like this. The Lord 
is my shepherd. David the shepherd said, as I care for my sheep, I need to be cared for by a good and greater shepherd. I found him. The Lord is my shepherd. Mm, I shall not want. Uh, folks, during this month, we are celebrating the birth of the unlikely King Jesus. Unlikely. Born in a manger. Animals were there. Bethlehem. Not a big old place. He had no pedigree in the eyes of the world. He went to nobody's Ivy League school. He never wrote a book. Never ran for political office and got elected to it. He was not wealthy at all. He possessed very little of what the Lord has to offer. And you are, and I are prepared to bow before him as our king. As with David, so too with King Jesus. From the sheepfolds. In David's case, to shepherd his people Israel. In our case, Jesus the good shepherd. To shepherd us until we make it to green pastures. The other side, based on our faith and confidence in the unlikely one, King Jesus. I hope this Christmas comes to be not a, so much a merry one. That's good. But I mean a meaningful one. God came near. Like a good shepherd, he came to know us by name. He does. He numbers the hairs on our head. He leads. He doesn't push. And he seeks to win our hearts by engendering our trust in him. What has he done to hurt us? Tell me. What has he done to let us down, disappoint us? What has he allowed to come our way that he hasn't used for good? He's trusted us. And then he says, follow me. I am the good shepherd. David was a type. That means he typifies the ultimate fulfiller of who David was. And that's the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus. I hope during this wonderful season of beautiful decorations like this, you go past externals and get to the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is that the babe born in Bethlehem is the king before whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. And you and I can know him as personal savior right now. Lord Jesus, thank you for the inexpressible gift of your birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return. For we who by faith are your sheep, and I pray during this season more than ever, we who know you would tell others so that those who don't yet know you would. I pray that the flock you've come to shepherd would grow like crazy during this Christmas season. And it's only, oh God, by eyes of faith that we have been enabled to see you for who you are. Based on externals, we would miss you. But what a heart, a heart for the sheep. You, the good shepherd, willing to die for the sheep. Smelly old, 
not so smart, intensely needy sheep. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for doing all this. In return, we want to be more devoted, trusting followers of you, our good shepherd. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Merry Christmas, folks. God bless you.